Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. My name is Brandon J. Fedor, and this is our premiere show. Each podcast, we bring you a new book by a critical theorist in the field. Thus far, we have an exciting schedule planned for fall and winter. We have confirmed guests Stacey Alamo, Avner Baz, Ulrich Plass, Suzanne Stewart-Steinberg, Amir Eschel, Marie-Helene Hewitt, and Jay Hillis-Miller. This week, I spoke with Dr. Wendy Steiner, author of The Real Real Thing, The Model and the Mirror of Art, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2010. I really enjoyed our conversation, and I think you will as well. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Wendy Steiner, author of The Real Real Thing, The Model and the Mirror of Art. Dr. Steiner, thank you for being with us today. It's a pleasure. Uh, Dr. Steiner, if you could just say a little little bit about yourself. Uh, Well, I was born and uh, raised in Canada. I lived in Winnipeg and Ottawa, and I went to McGill for my first degree, and then I went to Yale, um, and I've been in the States ever since, um, except for um, a number of years in London uh, that I managed to get away. Um, Ever since graduate school um, in the 70s, uh, I've I've been pursuing a kind of interdisciplinary approach to the arts. Um, I was sort of trained with semiotics and structuralism. Um, and so I made a kind of specialty for myself out of interartistic studies and especially the relations between verbal and visual art. Um, so I did my first book on Gertrude Stein and her relation to cubism. And I've uh, done books on narrativity and painting and literature and so on. Um, and by the mid-90s, um, I was looking at ethical issues in the arts. Um, and that's when I produced The Scandal of Pleasure, uh, which was about the cultural wars of the late 80s and early 90s. Um, and that is, in a way, the one of the background books to The Real Real Thing. So my work has was inspired by uh, some very uh, brilliant uh, linguists and um, theoreticians, Roman Jakobson and Jan Mukhachovsky and others uh, who were Russian formalists and structuralists. Um, And sort of inspired by them, I um, have tried to address broad cultural issues um, that seldom fit within single disciplines. Um, I'm, on the other hand, I've always been in English departments, um, and I'm at, I've been at the University of Pennsylvania for, since 1979. Uh, so I have a, I'm a chaired professor there, and I was chair of my department, um, as well. But, um, I was able to spend a number of years, as I said, um, in London, and during that time, I did a lot of cultural journalism, uh, writing for papers about various different arts um, and doing reviews and so on. And I really liked doing that. Um, It was very formative for me because, uh, well, not only because when you write an article for a paper, it comes out the next day rather than several years later, as happens in academia, but um, also because I felt that I was dealing with 
the same kinds of ideas I would um, be writing about in my scholarship, but I would be presenting them to the general public, and I thought that was an important thing for the humanities right now. So when I got back uh, from the longest stretch um, I had in London, which was three years long, um, I uh, formed the Penn Humanities Forum at uh, the University of Pennsylvania, which was one of whose missions was to bring the um, the humanities uh, out to the general public. Um, and inspired by that, um, I started um, doing a lot more sort of uh, creative art projects, and recently I've um, taken to writing opera librettos and getting them produced. Um, and my most recent project is a book on the interplay of um, architecture and medicine in uh, Burundi in a project in Africa, in a project called Village Health Works. Um, so um, I'm retiring. I'm about to retire from Penn. Uh, that's the end of that piece of the story, I guess. Um, I'll be retiring in January in order to take up these projects in earnest. Hmm. As a way to transition into our conversation about the book, could you maybe speak a little bit about uh, the loose trilogy that you said the real, real thing sort of uh, finishes? Mm-hmm. Well, the, um, the the culture wars um, in the late '80s and early '90s um, were sort of shocking to me. The University of Pennsylvania was very much implicated in them because the Robert Maplethorpe exhibition started out at the ICA in Philip in at Penn. And um we had many political correctness scandals on campus like so many other universities and um so I I began a leave in London um uh, that lasted for three years, and the first thing that happened to me there was the outbreak of, or it didn't happen to me, but the uh, first thing I saw there was the outbreak of the um, Salman Rushdie uh, fatwa, and mm-hmm. so it seemed as if the arts were in a very difficult situation in terms of public understanding and um, public approval. And so I began to think about, um, in a way that I hadn't really tried before, to think to think about the function of the arts in society and um, and their relation to ethical issues. Um, so um, this was a big departure in a way from my previous work because um, the the training that uh, one got through um, you know structuralism and semiotics and uh, was an, a kind of early modernist training in a way. It was kind of an um, uh, a, theori- a theorization, I guess, of, of, of ideas from um, the modernist avant-garde about notions about the, um, the difference between art and the rest of experience and uh, an approach to art through what made it significantly different from everything else um, that took you away from its relation to its audience, its w- relation to the real world, its relation to... Um, its models or anything else in the real world that turned up in art and so on and, and focused attention instead on form. So, and the idea that you could deal with ethics and aesthetics in the same breath was um, kind of controversial, uh, at least. So when identity politics arose um, in the 80s, I was first um, very resistant to it. But 
gradually it seemed to me less and less possible to be uh, resistant to that. And some of the things that came up in the um, the culture wars were real lessons in that way. Um, during the Maplethorpe trial, um, one of the expert witnesses was um, asked, you know, a, a photograph of a man uh, urinating into the mouth of another man was held up in front of her, and the prosecutor asked her why that was art. <laughs> and she said, look at the beautiful diagonal. <laughs> <laughs> it seemed to me that this was the kind of uh, an object lesson that, uh, in the fact that we had come to the end of um, formalism. <laughs> uh, because uh, I don't think they won the, uh, the trial because of that at all. Um, and it, it was such a ridiculous thing, uh, justification to use that it seemed to me that the, you know, we had to do better than that if we were going to come up with an account for art. <laughs> so that was the beginning of, uh, that and various other things were the beginning of my sort of, um, turning to this, this idea of how one could speak intelligently about, um, and usefully about the way that art, um, could impact reality. Um, without sort of treating it as a, a kind of uh, simple-minded um, set of instructions for the world, you know, as if reading, you know, every time you read a novel or, or looked at a picture, you were being reprogrammed directly for, uh, you know, as, as so many of the conservative opponents of the arts were saying at the time. So that was uh, what I tried to do in um, The Scandal of Pleasure, and that um, led me to think about the role of beauty in the arts um, and what what was beauty. And um, again, the kind of heritage of uh, the Enlightenment and um, that had played into a lot of modernism was very Kantian and uh, very hierarchical in its understanding of beauty and 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 so on. It tended to present beauty as um, um, a property of objects um, that would be perceived by anybody who was a normal person. Um, so if you could see normally and, um, you know, uh, had a brain, you would, uh, you would, um, you, we would all, all human beings would be able to perceive what was beautiful. And if you didn't, that just showed that there was something wrong with you, and there were always a few deviant characters around, <laughs> even though the deviant characters around t- turned out to be whole classes of people who hadn't been educated in precisely the right way or who were women instead of men or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I, I was um, trying to find a way of talking about beauty that would avoid that sort of thing because also it seemed to me um, so completely inaccurate about about everything, Every, even you know, meticulously educated male people of the right class change their minds about what's beautiful to them at one time or another. Um, and uh, so to think that beauty was a kind of um, uh, continuing characteristic of objects just seemed to me wrong-headed um, uh, because. Um, it just didn't line up with the history of reception. So, um, I, after thinking about it for a while, I decided that, um, the way to think, a better way to think about beauty would be to think about it as a particular sort of interaction between people, um, between, or, uh, or, uh, between a person, a perceiver, and, um, an object 
that that person discovers to be beautiful. And in the process of discovering that, um, the person is moved by um, by the qualities of the object, by the um, the fineness of the object. And then, but as you know, as that is going on, the person discovers him or herself to be moved by it. You see yourself mm-hmm. as moved. And in seeing yourself in this way, you learn about your own fineness or your attunement to something that is fine. And so it's very difficult under these circumstances to begin to distinguish the beauty of the object beyond you from your own quality, your own beauty uh, within yourself. And that um, sort of mutual tuning fork-like um, uh, similarity or um, attunement um, is, it seems to me, a better description of what goes on in the experience of beauty. Um, and when you no longer find yourself moved by that object, it seems less beautiful to you, you know, in the same way. And um, Or if you just don't respond to it in the first place, you, you can say things like, uh, I know some people find it very nice, but I don't. Um, uh, it is beautiful to some people, but not to me, and so on and so forth. And that seemed to me a, a more accurate way of talking about these things. So that's what I wrote about in uh, Venus in Exile, um, the, a book that came out in 2001. That was the second in this, um, what I'm calling a kind of loose trap trilogy of books. Um, and the final chapter of that was about um, the idea of model, because uh, that the model is a mo- often a model of what is beautiful. Um, but I, this has happened to me a number of times in books where I write a kind of concluding chapter, and I really shouldn't have put it there because it's really the prospectus for the next book. <laughs> and um, so I discovered that in um, in writing this very cryptic chapter for the end of um, Venus in Exile, I was really beginning another book, and that became the real, real, the real, real thing, um, whose subtitle is um, The Model in the Mirror of Art. Um, because the model is this amazing figure who is both a real person in the real world and somebody who gives up her image for art and who becomes image-like in the process of posing. And so the model has this an intermediary... Um, uh, function, a, a kind of double function of being both real and virtual at the same time. And I began to think about how important that is as a symbol at a time like ours when we have uh, media intruding on every aspect of our lives, when we're constantly turning ourselves into images and uh, profiles and developing avatars of ourselves and so forth. Um, Susan Sontag said in, you know, it's a long argument, but uh, she came up with this formulation, to live is also to pose. Um, And she was talking about the um, this drive that we have to see ourselves as images um, in photographs and so on. Um, And I think that people are tremendously concerned, constantly processing their relationship at the moment to the virtual, um, the, you know, trying to figure out what what is real and as opposed to what is merely represented. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, 
and it's becoming more and more difficult to do. And the model um, is a figure that uh, sort of encapsulates that dilemma, that duality. And, um, I, and part of the reason that I wrote The Real Real Thing is that um, I, in just looking at films and um, visual art exhibitions and reading novels and so on, models were suddenly cropping up all over the place, where, whereas the model um, had been a negative figure in 1960s feminism. Um, you know, the, the woman who poses was, you know, an evil figure. And a more, and in a lot of stories that modernism told about models, um, the model was a figure to be banished or disregarded um, in order to preserve the... Um, the purity of the artwork, um, its lack of contamination from the real. Mm. Well, to go back to the model, the, the locus of your study, uh, the first question I had for you is, is you refer to the model as an ontological paradox, um, a figure that allows society to understand, experience, and access subjectivity through the figure of what you call the thoroughly objectified woman. So I was wondering if you could maybe elaborate on that paradox a little bit. You started to talk about it um, a little bit, and I wonder if you could elaborate just a little bit more. How can a figure so thoroughly objectified serve as a conduit for the realization of subjectivity, democracy, and freedom, things you get into later in the book? (laughs) Yeah, it does seem like an impossibility, doesn't it? Very intriguing. Yeah, well, I think that um, when we talk about the, the objectification of the model, we're talking about the model as understood by um, modernism, by feminism, interestingly enough, which is not necessarily much in um, harmony with um, modernism on a lot of issues, um, and with very um, uh, sort of, uh, uh, you know, anti-feminist ideas of the woman, that is, of, of women in general. Um, so the model is sort of um, understood as... Um, as just a, an exterior um, and good only as an exterior whose interior is is unimportant, whose subjectivity is unimportant, um, who needs whose subjectivity needs to be disregarded in order for um, the artist to say through her appearance whatever he uh, needs to say. You know, and I'm going to use he for the the artist and she for the model just for convenience here. Um, but uh you know this state of affairs um uh you know is terrific i mean that that sort of picture of what a model could be is terrific if you understand the work of art to be this um to be isolated from reality to be uh controlled by the artist to be um something uh whose separation from the real is um, it's moral imperative, or it's aesthetic imperative, one might say. But insofar as you're interested in the work of art as an as part of an interaction, um, then the model um, is one one component of that interaction. So, and you know, interestingly, a great many treatments of the model in the artworks that I've been observing recently um, have been. Uh, forcing us to think of the model as an active figure in this, not just somebody who stands there passively and is told to do this or that by the the artist um, and whose uh, identity is irrelevant to the final work of art, 
um, and who is exploited and who is, you know, uh, has a false consciousness as a woman and all the rest of that. But instead as somebody who uh, puts yourself into a pose, who suggests things to the artist, who manipulates the artist in certain ways in order to be represented the way she wants to be, um, and so on and so forth. And um, a great many biographies and, auto- and memoirs of, art- of models are being published all over the place. Um, many films focus on the model as a person, a human being, a real person, um, who is exploited or not exploited by the artist and so on. In other words, the issue of uh, agency and subjecthood um, is sort of um, easily addressed in relation to models because uh, in the past models have been sort of understood as lacking those characteristics. So, um, and uh, it's really interesting to see that when people are trying to um, show a kind of uh, hard-won uh, achievement of subjectivity, they often do it by showing a model who becomes an agent vis-a-vis a work of art that she's in. Mm-hmm. And a lot of um, contemporary artists, too, uh, especially women artists, are using themselves as models. So the, the relationship between um, subject and object between agency and passivity and so on uh, doesn't arise in the same way um, or is blurred uh, when they do so. Also, when um, you sort of activate one, fi- one real person in this um, interactive situation um, that the work of art is, uh, then you activate all of them, and suddenly the audience is getting to have a very important role in artworks that it was very much denied in modernism. Um, Modernist artists often treated, and and theorists too, treated the the audience of art as, you know, irrelevant. You know, the the effective fallacy of Winsett and Beardsley, the new critics, um, held that taking into account how people responded to works of art um, was a mistake mm-hmm. um, because there was no way really to know what how they did and um, you know in an objective sense and um, nor was there going, necessarily going to be any consistency in that and who cared anyway because the work of art is you know told was the best source of information for what the work of art was. Um, you should, uh, and in fact, they went so far as to say that the artist was also, or artist's intentions or the artist's life or the artist's input was also irrelevant to the thing. You should look at the work of art for what it was and not for any, its relationship to any of the people involved in its creation or reception. So, um, suddenly when you begin, uh, to think about the work of art as part of, as an interactive whole, um, and the appeal of its of of the work of art, its beauty as um, a matter of interaction, then the real figures who are involved in that interaction become tremendously important. And a lot of artists and are creating works of art right now that who's who's that cannot be understood just in terms of their form, um, their structure. Um, their internal organization. They have to be uh, explained in terms of their interactive qualities. 
mm-hmm. um, their relationship to their. So uh, that's somebody who tried to reach me. I'm afraid, <laughs> but, oh, so okay. I'll ignore it. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, it's my daughter, but I can get her later. Don't worry. Um, so, uh, you know, when you, I, I use the example of um, Oscar Munoz's um, uh, wonderful work called Breath um, in uh, the real, real thing. And I found your uh, discussion of that really amazing. Oh, I'm, I'm glad because I and I I think what you said about it um, in your note to me uh, I really like that you know the you notice that the viewer is somewhat somewhat effaced in the process of bringing somebody else who uh, has been effaced in the world back uh, before us mm-hmm. so that I like that you notice that. Um, do you want me to describe the? Um... Yeah, yeah. If you could, it's it's hard to to. It might be a little hard to describe, but yeah. Oscar Munoz's breath is a, a work that is a really good example of um, a piece of art that cannot be understood in purely formal terms, and it is deliberately set up to evoke the idea of of um, an interaction. So, um, looked at from afar, it. Uh, it looks like an installation of uh, oval, polished steel plates, uh, a bunch of mirrors on the wall without frames. Um, if the viewer comes up close, however, not only does she see herself reflected in one of these plates, but her breath will fog it. And when her breath fogs the plates, um, a face appears in the fog um, because there is a face etched into the plate that it's invisible unless there is um, a fog of breath around it. And um, that face um, is an etching of a photograph from um, the announcement in a newspaper of the disappearance of um, a political enemy of the state in in Colombia, which is the country from which the artist comes. Um, so that person is in uh, is, is said to have been disappeared, um, and by um, in other words, probably assassinated. But nobody knows for sure. All that you know for sure is that the person is no longer there. So the family gets no closure, uh, has no way to bury the person or anything, and um, lives with insecurity. So this artwork um, makes the viewer cause the disappeared person to appear, or at least the image to appear, and um, it's a kind of act of generosity and um, and a little bit of self-assessment because um, the viewer's uh, reflection in the mirror is um, obscured a little bit um, by the fog that around the face of the disappeared. So there's a kind of give and take of appearance and disappearance involved in this. There's a kind of empathetic sharing of um, the problem of appearing and disappearing. Um, and there's a kind of act of lending in a kind of um, hopeful, generous way, um, a proof of one's own living nature that is one's breath um, to somebody else um, in perhaps a desperately doomed way, but at least an act of, um, of charity and kindness. 
So how, how can you describe that in formal terms? I mean, it's just not possible. It is um, a work about interaction and um, an interaction that produces uh, empathy, um, that is meant to produce empathy and to produce a kind of um, uh, an analogy and an, an experience of one's own analogy um, between the viewer and the person who has suffered this fate. Obviously, it has um, ethical implications. I mean, it's um, that that you are bucking the will of uh, an oppressive government by causing this person's image to come into existence, and so on and so forth. And moreover, you are uh, um, sort of uh, engaging in an active way as a viewer in the constitution of a work of art, rather than passively standing in front of it. You merge your image with that of its subject in order to create the image in the first place. Um, without the viewer, literally, there is nothing there but an empty um, an empty steel plate. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't remember if this was also a Munoz piece that you wrote about where the, uh, the passport photos were posted on the wall and there was a mirror in between them. That's a different, no, that's a different piece. Oh, can you speak um, about that it, a little bit? Yeah, that one is called Identity, and um, it's produced in... Um, uh, uh, the, the, the Argentina. Um, and it's another piece about uh, disappeared people. Um, so uh, one sort of um, uh, variant on the disappearing, the disappearing of political enemies um, was the um, when was the disappearing of um, people who were about to have who were enemies who were about to have a baby, uh, pregnant women and their husbands, who were um, in Argentina, apparently were sort of stolen away and kept alive until the baby was born, um, knowing that they would be killed when the baby was born and knowing that the baby would be raised by people who were their political enemies and therefore trained up in ideas that were anathema to them. So uh, the kind of horror of that is something to think about. Um, the parents of the disappeared people, hence the grandparents of the babies who would be produced that way, um, banded together over the years as um, a kind of an action group and held demonstrations and hired a, co- um, a collective of artists um, to create an art piece uh, dealing with this situation. And the piece that they created is Identity, which was... Um, uh, a series of um, uh, an installation uh, over you know many 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 feet of uh, gallery wall um, that was that included uh, an image a photograph of the mother the father um, and the father where they could uh, get images of both of them along with information about the disappearance um, and a mirror. So the mother-father mirror, mother-father mirror, that was the kind of um, progression of images throughout this uh, long, snaking um, installation. And um, when this was first put up in in Argentina, um, at the first sort of showing, apparently two people saw themselves in the mirror beside these images of parents who were 
adults the same age as the people looking in the mirrors and recognized the resemblance. In other words, they found their parents, their long-hidden parents, uh, by attending this gallery and seeing the connection between them, their own between their own reflections and these old photographs of their dead parents. Um, and as soon as that happened, the artists took out the images of those um, parents and the mirror that went with them from that exhibition. And in the course, and since then, in the course of the um, ten years or so since that first went up, um, something like. 38 people have discovered their identities through this work of art, and, and the, those images have been removed. Um, and there are, I don't know, a couple of hundred altogether, and the idea would be that um, if the work were completely successful, there would be nothing in it left mm-hmm. at the end. Um, so there is a work of art whose um, goal is an ethical goal, if ever there was one, to create um, or to deliver up uh, I, uh, you know, a revelation of identity to the viewer, um, and in a, a sort of selfless way, um, if we can speak about art in that way, uh, self-effacing way, uh, so that the work of art is only important in so far as it causes people to understand who they are. That, as an um, an idea about art, of course, is, applies to all kinds of art that. It, you know, creates revelations of uh, self-identity and so forth. But this one is very literal and very political in its um, in its function. Yeah, and I found that fascinating. How several numbers of people actually found their parents through interacting with that art. That's truly art acting in the world. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, another uh, piece of art that you talked about. And I've actually I've been to this this installation. Is the uh, the memorial to the murdered Jews of Europe in Berlin? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And I, th- I think that's a, for people who haven't been there. I think that's a fascinating uh, piece of public art to interact with. And what I found more interesting about that was actually observing how people interact with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you talked a little bit about Eisman's sort of philosophy in, in creating that work of art. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that too, because at least recently it's been a fairly controversial, uh, installation in Berlin. Yeah. Um, it, it was tremendously, um, controversial, um, I mean, in all ways, but, um, and its reception has not been all that great. Um, in, among some people, because what it looks like from the outside is um, it's it's a bunch of um, rectangular uh, or rectilinear uh, blocks of stone that are uh, of varying height. Some of them about nine feet tall or so, you know, much bigger than a person, and some of them uh, very small, you know, a few inches off the ground and everything in between. And they're arranged in a grid over a huge city block in um, in Berlin. And um, so they form sort of rows and columns, and you, uh, the spaces uh, in the rows and columns are relatively small so that only one person can walk through each uh, aisle of it at a time. Um, I mean, you, people can walk behind each other, but it's very hard to walk side by side. Um, so you, uh, and they go on really a long way, and, they, way, and um, there, there are a lot of shadows uh, that uh, are cast onto the aisle that you're in at any given time. 
so that it's fairly dark to go through there. It's dark, it's inhumane sort of feeling, you know, because it's so geometric and so um, sterile. There are no plants or anything in it. It's just, you know, construction. And it sort of looks like, um, uh, you know, kind of a terrible dream about uh, being lost in some kind of inhumane environment. And, um, you know, people people have sort of assumed that that's the beginning and the end of it, um, that it's, you know, a kind of picture of the Holocaust as cruel and inhumane and uh, so on, but haven't we seen that before? Mm-hmm. Uh, and is this a good way to take up space in the center of, you know, a bustling city and, um, and so on and so forth? But um, what's interesting to me is the way that it creates um, that it, it sort of uh, foregrounds the idea of human relationship to this um, uh, environment, because when you're in it um, and you can't, you know, what you see is it's sort of like tunnel vision. You're in the dark, you know, or in shadows to some to quite a, a large extent, and you look through. And at the end of it. Um, you know, you can sort of see sunshine and maybe even trees at the, in the park across the street from the edge of this thing. Um, so you have this sort of sense of yourself in a, in a dark, difficult, unpleasant place, but with the idea that there's sunlight beyond you, and you can't help but think from the start that, um, that the people who were really in the Holocaust didn't have any sunlight at the end of it. So there's already that sort of sense of, of your temporariness in this situation as opposed to their permanence in it. And that's very interesting, it seems to me, in, in creating a, a relationship between um, the viewer and the subject of, uh, you know, the, the people who, were, who's, uh, who are those murdered Jews of Europe um, that, that are being, who are being memorialized. But second, your relationship to other viewers is, uh, very strange because you can sort of see them if they're in front of you in this thing. If they're if they're crossing you in one of the um, the aisles that cuts across yours, you don't really see them until they're just about to collide with you because the corners are so sharp and the the alleyways are so narrow, and so there's a kind of degree of um, unpredictability and danger and um, nervousness and. Uh, just hyper attentiveness to other people in the thing. If they're standing in front of you, um, they tend, tend to be, the, the ground, uh, is sort of oscillating in waves of, uh, you know, it's, it, there's quite a lot of variance in the height of the ground. And, um, so very often somebody will be much higher than you in the aisle that you're standing in far ahead and, um, they'll be highlight, highlight lit by the sunlight at the end of the row, and so they, it's very theatrical when you see them there. Um, and so there's this way in which things are not quite real at the same time that obviously they are real. Um, and, you know, there are children in there, and the children tend to make a lot of noise and skip around and, and you know, play games and run across the aisles and therefore cause collisions and things like that. Um, and there are people who are obvi- who are very upset about being there. So you see a lot of people with tears in their eyes, or or slump, you know, just in 
sad postures around, um, see other people sort of taking different attitudes. But all that I'm trying to say is that you're constantly seeing people doing various different things in relation to it. And the variability in that, I think, is really interesting. A lot of the criticism has been that people, that people do have these varying responses to it, and that's inappropriate because this is a very serious um, event that's being commemorated, and it's not proper to have little kids running around and playing or to have people just sit on some of the lower um, blocks of stone because it's tiring, you know, they're tired and uh, they've been walking a lot and so on. Um, it seems as if, you know, maybe there's some disrespect involved in, in that. But on the other hand, when you're, you know, when you're contemplating um, the, even the most serious events in history, your relation to them changes over time, oscillates or, or varies, at, depending on all kinds of things over time. And um, after all, we don't commit suicide just because we find out about the Holocaust either. We, we carry on our normal lives. And one of the things, um, however changed we might be, however saddened we might be, and so there's a way in which this, this um, highlighting of all kinds of responses in the presence of this fact is a truer representation of um, what it means to be affected by something in history um, than something that forces people to have a momentary experience of one kind or another and then releases them. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I, your um, discussion of, of the Memorial to the Murdered Jews of Europe, I think, did a better job of explaining maybe Eisman's intention than he has, uh, because I've, I've read interviews with him where he said that his ultimate goal would be that children would you know, play hide-and-go-seek um, in the memorial. And your discussion sort of made me realize how it isn't sort of a fixed um, installation, like it is not itself, like an end in itself. But the interaction that it creates between the viewer, whether that's being somber, uh, sunbathing on top of the Stella, which a lot of people in Berlin do, um, play hide and go seek, th that that interaction, that itself is is the, the piece Part of, of it, art. Yeah, I mean Eisenstein. I'm sorry, Eisenbaum is. Um, I'm not surprised that he gave, he gives this as a um, uh, an explanation. Because he's trained, you know, he's he's a formalist if ever there was one. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that you know, artists don't always, um, you know, they tell part of the story in their explanations, but maybe not the whole thing. And mm -hmm. um, and I I think that um, you know, of course, there are lots of ways to interpret what what that exhibition is doing or that uh, memorial is doing. But this is what I took away from it, and I think that, and it affected me greatly in this way. I mean, this sort of sense of the range of human response to tragedy, um, which, you know, we feel tremendous guilt about going about our normal lives um, in the, you know, once we know about terrible things like that. But what else can you do, you know? And, mm -hmm. and so there's that fact that, um, you know, that, you know, we experience all kinds of different feelings. It gets to be played out in in our experience of of that memorial itself, and I think that that's a tremendous gift to give to people. Mm. 
Yeah. Well, moving on from sort of art reflecting on on past experiences or past events. So the fat, uh, the last uh, two chapters or so of the book, you sort of end on this um, sort of like future ethical imperative or political imperative, and you draw a fine line between classicism and modern art. And you say that classicism relies upon and assumes a universal aesthetic and universal notions of beauty and uh, perfection, which you talked about a little bit in the beginning. Um, Whereas modern art is interactive, democratic, progressive, and pliable. And I was wondering if you could sort of talk about that a little bit, because I found that fascinating. And I found that the, the imperative at the end of your book was, was rather strong. Well, I, I feel really strongly about that, and, um, you know, I always always hesitate to feel that strongly about it, you know, any idea about the arts, because they're constantly changing, and you make a generalization like that, and there are a million exceptions to it, and mm-hmm. so on, and so um, uh, so it's hard to, but, but I, I do see enough of this that it's worth remarking on, at least, and that is that um, uh, I think that you could characterize our our time, um, as I was saying before, as um, having to deal with uh, concepts of communication and experiences of communication that are quite new. The scale of um, the global scale of uh, communication that the internet has brought, um, the, the the sort of variety of ways in which we can communicate with each other. Through email and not, you know, tele- it used to be telephone was a big deal. Now telephone is one of a gazillion different kinds of things. So we're all, and you know, the amount of time that we spend thinking about networking and um, and uh, you know, tweeting and all the different kinds of things that that we do mean that we're hyper attentive to the idea of communication and interaction. So, I mean, that is one of my starting points, that, that uh, of course, people are always worried about whether they're making contact with each other in one way or another. But now, because of all the media um, intrusions into our lives, we, we have no choice but to think about that really a lot. And a lot of people are very concerned about that, too, because though we have a kind of multiplication of ways of communicating, and we spend to be, it, we tend to spend a vast amount more time communicating with each other than it seems as if we've ever done before. Um, we're not necessarily sure about the quality of that interaction, whether anything of ourselves is really coming through, whether uh, we really understand anybody any better by all this time spent in, in uh, networking or not. Um, so I think that this is a broad cultural concern at the moment, and it has huge implications in every aspect of life. So if we're worried about the quality of communication, that's one of the things that artists um, are well-equipped to investigate and spend a lot of time investigating. And um, one of the things that I have observed in a lot of these works that are uh, being produced now about the model and about interactivity um, in in the experience of art um, is that artists are trying to use these um, these issues as a way to create a model of good communication uh, and what would good communication be um, it 's a communication in which the parties involved in it <clears throat> come into a kind of uh, relationship of equality 
uh, or a kind, at least a, enough temporary equality to feel akin to each other, to feel similar to each other, or empathetic with each other, or to feel that they're they're sharing something, however brief um, that is. And so, a lot of the treatments um, of models that I've been observing in the arts. Um, show a, a kind of um, cases in which the audience becomes a model or as in Thomas uh, Strutz's amazing photographs in the audience series where he photographs people viewing artworks and they themselves become the models for his artwork. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's this kind of chain of relationships set up that way where um, an, art, uh, an audience becomes the model and the artwork is about that modeling, um, and so on. Um, so the kind of an exchange of roles in the creation of the work of art, or like the ones I talked about before in um, breath and uh, and identity, where um, the audience becomes the artist in a way, or you know becomes a, a co-worker with the artist in the creation of the work of art. Um, so these um, these sort of nonce creations of reciprocity or sharing or mutuality or equality. Um, uh, one of the frequent things is that um, if an artist um, is using a model uh, in these artworks, the model uh, becomes and takes up the artist's uh, medium and makes the former artist into a, a model. So they trade places in that, and that is a kind of an equalization of their role in the work of art. So, I mean, a whole bunch of strategies, it seems to me, are being developed to represent the various roles in the creation and reception of works of art as being equal and uh, equal in value, equal in in importance in uh, the creation of the final work and so on, as opposed to the previous model for that, which was uh, very much hierarchical, where in modernism, again, the work of art was the highest value and um, the model was sort of sacrificed to the work of art, sort of necessary in order to produce the work of art or rejected altogether in the case of abstraction. Um, and the artist um, was, you know, the the one who set the whole thing in motion, but the artist was sort of... Um, to be put aside in the final sort of triumph that the work of art was. Um, and moreover, the audience was supposed to be thought of as bourgeois and ununderstanding and vulgar and banal and all the rest of it. Only the artist was important. Um, so there are various different kind of hierarchical um, positions involved in traditional ideas about um, art making. Um, Artist is active, model is passive, all these kinds of things. Uh, whereas the artworks I'm talking about are, are going to great efforts to undermine those hierarchies, to turn them around, make them work the opposite way, or to you know, iron out the inequalities in them altogether. Mm. Well, I think we've taken up a lot of your time, but maybe uh, in a way to kind of close our discussion, I would like you to comment on one last thing that you mentioned in your book, and this sort of maybe will bring us full circle. Um, Talking about the Internet and about new media, you said that in many ways uh, representation is our only access to what counts as real. 
And I'm wondering if you find that disconcerting or, I mean, is that a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Where, where are you on that issue? Well, I, I think that, um, you know, in a way, uh, you know, people have always accessed the real through, through representations. You know, there are cave paintings and all kinds of, um, signs that being human and being a representational being, you know, are, you know, have a lot of overlap, if not being identical ideas. But, um, we are, but we've always sort of operated in a common sense way, at least, with uh, um, an opposition between representation and reality, however much this has been relativized by all kinds of factors, including post-structuralist theory and so on. Um, you have to be quite mad, it seems to me, not to be able to make that distinction um, in some ways, <laughs> under mm-hmm. some circumstances. And, you know, as I say, because of all this, this sort of incursion of new media in our, our lives, it's getting harder and harder to see the boundaries between those. And I think, you know, the, the whole point is when faced with a challenge like, like that, you can be driven to despair, as a lot of people are, you know, or you can see it as a kind of a, a wonderful challenge or a, a possibility for new insights. And I, I think that that is what people will do. I mean, obviously, we wouldn't be, um, I mean, we, we must, uh, take the, uh, the new developments, not only in communications, um, but in uh, their kind of biological uh, analog in bioengineering and cloning and areas like that, which which are also um, impinging on art and have much to do with what all these ideas that I've been talking about. We must use these to our advantage, or uh, they can be very dangerous um, to the well-being of people. And I think that um, one of the goals of uh, and values of art is that it can provide insights into these issues that people can use. Um, I was just uh, talking to some researchers in um, the in medicine and uh, gerontology at um, Penn yesterday on. Um, uh, they've created a new institute on human appearance because we, we, because people's appearance impinges on so many aspects of their lives and um, and their health. And we were talking about um, beauty and interactivity involved in that. And and to them, these ideas were helpful in a therapeutic way. Um, I think that uh, you know the ideas that artists are dealing with in trying to uh, come up with a new understanding of beauty and of, of the efficacy of art in life, I think these ideas will have uh, practical benefit as we deal with a lot of the challenges that lie before us. Mm. Well, on that note, I want to thank you uh, for joining us today. No, thank you. It was a pleasure. It was nice talking to you. Well, that was our fascinating discussion with Dr. Wendy Steiner, author of The Real Real Thing, The Model in the Mirror of Art. 
I want to thank you for listening, and I want to encourage you to tune in next month when we talk to Jay Hillis Miller about his book, The Conflagration of Community, Fiction Before and After Auschwitz. I'd also like to encourage you to visit the website at newbooksandcriticaltheory.com and to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes. I'm Brandon J. Fedor. Goodbye for now.